Father God, we do pray that this, this time in your word is a time that is truly about your word, about your truth. And I pray, as you know, I often do as I enter into these times, that you move in spirit and truth. I pray, Father God, that your word penetrates the places that we need it most. Help us to be aware and attentive of what the Spirit of God is looking to teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we do find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 1. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you want to go to Ephesians chapter 1. The first question I want to ask as, we, uh, as you're turning to the page is, is Christianity inclusive or exclusive? Is anybody afraid to say it's inclusive? Is anybody afraid to say it's exclusive? Yeah, so it, it, really, it really is both depending on how you're using the terms. We read last week a verse out of John 1.12 that says, To all who receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, that is God, gave the right to become children of God. So Christianity is inclusive in the sense that it is to all who receive him. There is no boundary line when it comes to, to receiving Jesus. You come to Jesus, you receive him as Savior and Lord, regardless of race, regardless of social background, regardless of gender, regardless of your past history and your past mistakes. You are made according to the scriptures, to be his children. It is inclusive to all who would receive him. But Christianity is also exclusive in the sense, and we can use the same phrase, it's to all who receive him. So it's to all, it's inclusive, but it's to all who receive him. There is only one way to reconciliation with God. That's what the scripture teaches over and over and over again. There is one way. There's a, the Old Testament talks about the Savior, the Messiah, the anointed one who's coming. And then the New Testament unveils through the gospel who he is. And then the epistles, how we, follow, how we trust in him and follow him. That way is to receive Jesus Christ, to believe in his name. Uh, the beginning of Ephesians focuses on the fact that God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And last week, if you're here, I emphasized how inclusion with Jesus, that inclusive nature with Jesus, brings about astounding privileges. Paul, without taking a breath, goes on to list these blessings. And we mentioned last week that in the Greek, verses 3 through 14, and if you just take a glance on how long that is in, in your Bibles, verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence, one long exclamation of praise. 
And it emphasizes over and over that all these blessings that are received are found only in Jesus. God chose us in him. We are adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. His glorious grace has been freely given us in the one he loves. And then as we continue this morning in verses 7 through 14, the emphasis continues. Paul uses this phrase, in him or in Christ, six more times in these eight verses. Last week we focused on the divine origin of God's plan of salvation. And this week we'll kind of look at how that plan of salvation unfolds. So our focus this morning will be verses 7 through 14. But again, just to read it in the context, I'm going to start again in verse 3. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Just, just take note as we go along how, long, how often it's in him, in Christ, in the one he loves. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace. Which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now picking up on verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. I'll just make a note that with all wisdom and understanding, it's a little hard to know since there's no periods as we walk through. Does that belong to the end of that sentence in verse 8 or the beginning of verse 9? So it could also read, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we are also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. May God bless his word. So we started off in verse 7, and, and again, for those who are following along, last week we covered verses 1 through 6, and it says, In him we have redemption. So that's one of those interesting Christian words, right, that, that gets... Uh, thrown around, and we, we, it's one of those religious phrases that some, some people use, but what does it mean? What, is, what does it mean to be redeemed? What, is it, what does redemption mean? What's the basic essence of it? To buy back? 
fully paid for. Yeah, so when you see that word redemption or, or redeemed, redemption has to do with a price paid to regain what was once owned but is now owned by another. And it's also used uh, in scripture in the context of a ransom, a ransom that is paid to free someone from slavery. Now, it's very hard for us uh, as, as uh, Americans living in this century to imagine the confines of what a life of slavery would be in a physical sense, at least. But if you could even go there for a moment or attempt to go there, and, and maybe you've done that as you've watched a, a movie concerning slavery or what have you, and said, man, what would it be like to be in that kind of bondage? And then on top of that, if, if, if you were a slave and your owner was just an atrocious, cruel master, if you were someone's property, and they, their, their owning of you was, was in such a dynamic that they used and abused you. They beat you. They didn't feed you enough. They worked you to the bone, and your life was full of meaningless toil. You did not know what love was. You did not know what it is to be cared for. You don't know, you don't know what it is to feel safe ever, by day or by night. And then imagine, if you will, that a rich man comes along and that this rich man wants to purchase you, wants to buy you for himself. Uh, it was interesting, my, my wife and I, just we were just uh, uh, traveling um, over the holidays and we have the, the Chronicles of Narnia on, on CD, so we were listening to uh, The Horse and His Boy. And in the very beginning of that story, there's kind of that scenario. The, the main character, Shasta, thinks he's a son of this fella early in the book, but he's really not a son at all. He's really a slave. And another man comes along to purchase him and is offering money for him, but he doesn't know anything about this man, so he starts, he starts envisioning what it could be. And he says, I wonder what sort of man that Tarkian is. It would be splendid if he was kind. Some of the slaves of a great lord's house have next to nothing to do. They wear lovely clothes and eat meat every day. You just imagine that he's just dreaming of what that would be like. Perhaps he'd take me to the wars and, and I'd save his life in a battle and then he'd set me free and adopt me as his son. Imagine that. And give me a palace and a chariot and a suit of armor. But then he might be horrid. He might be a cruel man. He might send me to work in the fields in chains. I wish I knew. How can I know? A slave can only dream of such freedom. A slave can only dream but, ha but has no way of freeing themselves. They're not in control of their own destiny. 
Scripture tells us that every human being is a slave. And that, that's so hard, I know, for us to conceive, but, but that is the reality of our nature in sin. That God says that, that, that it is just as real of a bondage, even more so, we can say, than a physical slave, because it's got you on the inside. And it twists and, and, and controls your thinking and your responses and, and how you look at yourself and how you treat others and your understanding of God. And, and it just, it, it has you, it has its shackles on every area of your life. And you are not able to free yourself from it. And that, in fact, that slavery, that very slavery to that bondage of sin that started with rebellion of God, and, and really that's the walk of the bondage of sin, that I'm really rebelling against what God says is good, right, just, and fair, is the, the consequences of that is death. But what if someone did come along What if there was someone <laughs> so rich and so compassionate and so generous that he would at great personal sacrifice to himself pay for your freedom? That's the gospel, that someone has come, that is the good news. That someone would look to someone that good, that rich, that able, that caring, that generous, that great sacrifice to himself would come along and ransom you out of sin and death. That Jesus Christ has come. And given his perfect life for my sinful life. That freedom is only made possible. It says in, you, in him you have been redeemed. Why? How? I find this redemption through his blood. That redemption, that the buying of me out of that slavery would only come by the sacrifice of his very life. Hebrews 9.22 reminds us what, what the people of Israel already knew. That there needed to be a sacrifice for there to be forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And no one, no one can ransom themselves before God for someone else if they have their own eternal debt to pay. I can't ransom my life for Luke. Luke can't ransom his life for me, and none of us could ransom our lives before God for each other because we have our own debt to pay. So that's why it took a perfect man, a God-man, the author of life, whose life is sustained throughout eternity past to eternity future, to be able to give up his lifeblood to ransom you and I. And it's there that we find forgiveness. Some people don't think they need forgiveness. 
There's kind of two sides of that coin. Some people say, you know what? I am a pretty good person. I do pretty good things. I have a pretty strong moral fiber. I, you know, I walk the old lady across the road. I throw a dollar into the basket. I go to church every once in a while. And they say, you know what? I'm a pretty good person. I don't think I need to be forgiven. And that, I can only encourage you, is the deception of self-righteousness. And then other people are like, you don't know what I've done. I've done too much to be forgiven. I remember having a conversation with my cousin Jimmy who died at 25 years old from a drug overdose. And he said, he said exactly that. I was saying, Jimmy, you can be forgiven. And he says, you don't know what I've done. I said, listen, it matters what you've done. But it doesn't matter what you've done. Because Jesus paid for that. It's done, paid in full. You can be redeemed. We all need forgiveness. And it's when we understand we have that need for forgiveness, right, that we put away self-righteousness. And we also embrace the fact that we can be forgiven, that Jesus' sacrifice was a perfect one that would cover all of our sins. It's there when we enter into that that we can find the divine pardon that we all seek. We will be redeemed, set free from sin and death. And it says this is according to the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And the, the sense of that word is that it's an overabundance. We say God's grace is sufficient. And Logan said that and scripture said that God's grace is sufficient. But listen, it's not just sufficient. It's an overabundance. A uh, man named Francis Folk says it's a superabundance of God's giving. And then not only this, and we got to realize this as we read through this section of Ephesians, God, Paul is giving us an eternal perspective. He's given us an eternal perspective for what God has done for us in eternity past. He's given us a perspective of how we should respond in the now. And then here he also says that there's a revelation that we're given in Christ into the future. That he made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, in, in chapter, a little later on in Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 6, we're told that the mystery has been revealed that Gentile believers, non-Jews, which probably composes most of us here today, that it is a miracle that they have become co-heirs with Israel, with, with Jewish believers, those who will turn their lives and their hearts over to Messiah. And they're included as members, equal members of the same body and the same promise. But here we see, as John Stott puts it, that this ethnic unity, this idea of Gentiles and, and Jews being brought together in one body, this ethnic unity is a symbol and foretaste of a future unity that will be greater and more wonderful still. Meaning that, as, as, as Paul puts it, as the times reach their fulfillment... As time, as time as we know it blends back into eternity, there will be a time that Jesus says time is done. <laughs> and it is time. 
And that in that moment, all conflict will cease and all enemies will be dealt with. And disorder, all the disorder that sin has brought into the world will be brought back into beautiful order. And all the decay of creation, the Bible says that creation itself is groaning for this day. That all the decay of creation will be renewed. And Jesus Christ will unequivocally be seen for what he is, the Lord of all that is. A time to come, as Paul says in his letter to the Philippian church, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen? So we're getting this divine perspective. God has chosen you if you, are, if you know him and you have trusted in him and you, you have turned to him as Lord and Savior. You can be assured of the fact that before you chose him, he chose you in eternity past. And now he's given us this glimpse into eternity future. There's going to be a time that the Lord brings everything and renews everything and he is going to be Lord over all. And what should this do for us? It should, as it says in 2 Corinthians, our troubles now should seem in perspective of those things as light and momentary troubles. It should give us a new outlook on our circumstances. Rather than just seeing today as today and all the little problems and how are we going to solve these things and oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Wait a minute. Let me step back. God has loved me in eternity past. And God's loving me and Lord of all through eternity future. What am I worried about today? Second, then Paul looks at the process of becoming included in Christ. Just a quick side note, verses 12 and 13. Paul seems to be contrasting a bit the Jewish believers with the Gentile believers. Because it would have been such a... Hard thing to grasp for the Jewish believers that, that Gentiles, non-Jews, um, would be grafted into God's people. And, and Paul says, we who were the first to hope in Christ, and it seems that he's including himself, as he should, in Israel as a Jew. As someone who has, as a Jew, come to trust the Messiah. The first fruits of salvation. And then he says, you also were included. Speaking to the Gentiles and this miracle of the non-Jews being co-heirs and equal citizens. So we've heard about salvation's divine origin and, and we've been told of its divine source only through the shedding of Jesus' blood. But what actually happens in space and time? That we become redeemed and included in Christ. The process in some ways seems painfully simple. Though we know the journey with God is not simple, we know it wasn't simple for Christ. But he just gives us a couple of elements here. He says, God first gave you the opportunity to hear. That you need to hear the gospel. That as much as it absolutely grieved the God of love, you are separated from him in your sin. But that in Jesus, he has given you every opportunity to be restored. Every opportunity to be reconciled. 
every opportunity to live a life that, that grows into the reality of that restoration and reconciliation. God has destined for you to hear it. It's not a coincidence that you've heard the gospel. Many of you have surrendered to the Lord. Some of you here, inevitably, in a group this size have not. Maybe, maybe this is afresh to you, or you're hearing it afresh. Or maybe you've heard it a thousand times. But listen, it's not a coincidence that you hear the gospel. God has destined it to be so. Romans 10.14 says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching it to them? That's why sharing the gospel is so important. You know, we talk about, and I get it, that we can't just be about our words. That we have to also share the gospel with our actions, right? But it's got to be both. It's got to be word and action. You, that doesn't mean throw the baby out with the bathwater. People have to hear. People have to be introduced to Jesus. That's got to gracefully enter into your conversations. Second... Even in the light of, of the, this picture of God's predestined election, we, and again, ask me to break this all down for you, and it starts to get above my pay grade, I'll tell you. We, out of our own free will, must believe and respond to Jesus in faith. To hear simply makes you responsible for what you hear. It makes you accountable to what you hear. I may not know exactly what I owe the electric company, right, until I get a bill. And then I get a bill, and it tells me you owe $117 and whatever cents. And now I know, I see and understand the debt that has to be paid. Hearing alone isn't salvation. Salvation becomes ours through faith. And not just an intellectual nod, but a faith that becomes a total giving of yourself. A total transfer of trust. But it does begin with one step. One call out. One, one, one cry to the Lord. To be your savior. Have you believed in him? Going to church doesn't make that happen. Growing up in a, church, in a Christian family doesn't make that happen. Hearing it a thousand times doesn't make it happen. It has to be. A moment in time that you personally call out to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Amen. That's what has to happen. If it hasn't happened, if you wonder about that, come see me. Come see someone here that you know walks with the Lord and trusts in the Lord. We'd love to talk to you about it. Love to pray with you about it. Thirdly, in that moment of faith, Paul tells us that God, God places his mark or seal on us. We just went recently uh, at, at, here at Oregon Hill, went through a series on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, and we've kind of gone through this territory recently that God's, God's specific mark of ownership on us, like a king would in ancient times with his signet ring, is the Holy Spirit of God. There's a point, I, I, like, I, I sometimes think of this story with this. Now this is getting old. I'm actually starting to date myself to talk about the original Toy Story. Right? So I didn't go back as far as Buck Rogers, okay? <laughs> Buck Rogers, wow. 
But I will go back to the original Toy Story, which is, it, it'd probably be scary to see when that was actually made to me. Uh, but in that story, uh, the, if you've watched that movie, Buzz Lightyear at one point is coming to grips with the fact that he is not the Buzz Lightyear. Like all through the movie, he's disillusioned. I am the Buzz Lightyear. No, you're not, right? What he would say, you're only a toy, you know? He'd be like, you know, who, what galaxy am I in? Who are you? And, but he, had, he at one point in the movie starts to come to grips with the fact that he isn't the Buzz Lightyear. He is only a toy. But Woody tries to convince him then that, no, listen, you do have great value. Not because you're a space ranger, but because there's a kid who thinks you're the greatest. And Buzz is his. And then, there, and then as Buzz is feeling sorry for himself, there's this point that he gazes down to the bottom of his boot. And there's something written there. What's, what's written there? Handy. Handy, his owner. And from there, all of a sudden, you see Buzz emboldened in his new identity. He's loved. And he's owned by Andy. And Andy's mark of ownership is on him. God's mark of ownership is on us in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Not the branding of a slave, but a mark that we are his children. Romans 8.15, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship. It says this spirit is, a, is described as a deposit or a guarantee. Have you ever gone to a store or a marketplace or maybe you're a motorcycle rider. We've got a few of those there. And you're, you're in the motorcycle shop and you see something across the floor and you're like, oh, that's just what I wanted. And all of a sudden you wander over there or you're in the furniture shop. That's just the couch I was looking for. And all of a sudden you look at the price tag and it says, sold. Now likely in that scenario what has happened is someone has come in and says, I want that. I'm going to buy it. And they put down a what? A deposit. They put a deposit down. A deposit shows that you're serious about the purchase. It's taking a portion of your riches and investing it so that it's held for you. That no one else would be able to take it. In one sense, the Holy Spirit is God's investment. It's his money down in your life. And God will never forfeit that deposit. On the, on the contrary, the Holy Spirit is, as Paul says, our guarantee of internal, eternal, our internal inheritance. It's guaranteed because of the deposit God has put in you, his mark on you, his, his, you know, like writing Andy on the bottom of the boot. It's guaranteed. It's not like we all hear stories of, of squabblings and disputes in families where, where there becomes so much trouble and so much discord that, that that daughter or son is written out of the will. Well, you were in my will, but you're not any longer. But God is not like that. He will never forfeit his deposits. The Holy Spirit guarantees our inheritance. Which, which 1 Corinthians 2.9 beautifully says, quoting Isaiah 64.4, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has pre prepared for those who love him. He is a deposit. He is a guarantee showing that we are God's possession. You are not your own, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says. You are bought at a price. 
How can Paul now say, until our redemption at the end here? I thought we already had redemption. Now he says it's until our redemption. It's interesting, this word guarantee in verse 14 is the same word in modern Greek that's used for an engagement ring. Redemption is ours now, and it's ours to come. And in the ancient Jewish culture, engagement wasn't like it is for us today. It was as binding as the marriage covenant, but wasn't fully consummated till the wedding day and the wedding bed. So the Holy Spirit is, in one sense, God's engagement ring to us. A betrothal as binding as the marriage commitment. And there's no divorce rate with God. He is the one that is faithful and true, that will never leave, leave us or forsake us. We've been redeemed. Freed from the bondage of sin and made God's possession. And this will be fully realized when the times have reached their fulfillment and our engagement ring will find with it a wedding ring in the presence of Christ forever. These are the realities of those who are in him and those who find themselves in Christ, who have heard and believed, who have been sealed and received a guarantee. And the only appropriate response is not to live as if sin is still our master. Why would we go back to that ugly place? But to live according to the praise of his glory. John Stott says, and I'll close with this, fallen man imprisoned in his own little ego. I think what a picture that is. Imprisoned in his own little ego has almost boundless confidence in the power of his own will and almost an insatiable appetite for the praise of his own glory. But the people of God have at least begun to be turned inside out. Let's pray. So Father God, in light of such realities, I just ask that you help us to live in the powerful presence of your mark of ownership on us, your Holy Spirit, as your free and redeemed children to the praise of your glory. May we view our present troubles with one eye on eternity, seeing them as 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, as light and momentary troubles, looking forward to the eternal glory that far outweighs them all. In Jesus' name.